Our Father and God, we thank you for your goodness. We commit our words and our conversation to you. We ask that you would bless it for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what I'd like to do is alternate, go back and forth um, between the two of you, asking questions, but inviting the other to jump in as, uh, as the Spirit moves you. I'd like to begin with you, uh, Tim. Uh, in your wonderful talk on uh, ordinary uh, living the gospel out in ordinary means and including um, unbelievers in that ordinary day-to-day -day stuff that, that we do. One of the things that you're, you, people should uh, might worry about is coming up against the fact that many of the non-Christians who will be most attracted to that are the most dysfunctional in worldly terms and have all sorts of issues and problems and, and parents, let's say, <coughs> of young children don't want a whole lot of that tracked into the house. How, what would you say about that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we, we, we put some limits. Um, so, I, I mean, we have two daughters, so uh, one of the kind of rule of thumbs was that we wouldn't have men staying with us unless we knew them well. Um, uh, just for, because we wanted our children, our daughters particularly, to feel safe and secure in the home. Um, but I, I think, I mean, I think the, the key thing for me is that um, I'm a messed up person. Uh, it's not that I'm this sort of, or my family is this pristine family and I've got to keep the horrible, polluting sinners, you know, at arm's length. I, I'm a messed up person. And, uh, but I've received, I'm a recipient of God's grace. And, uh, and that, 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 that has, ought to have an impact in terms of, you know, it, it is again and again, I think, it, both in the Mosaic law and in the teaching of Jesus, the expectation is that our experience of grace will, will make us gracious people and will, will radically transform the way we relate to the other, as it were, to the person who is different from us. But the other thing I would say is that... Um, I mean, my experience is that, I mean, it, it is tough. It, it, it's tough. I, I always think uh, somebody should write a book. Uh, a woman should write a book called Missional Church from the perspective of those who have to clear up afterwards. Um, you know, just, just what it's like in the day-to-day -day reality of, of the mess and chaos that sometimes that can create. Um, and so, so, so there are those moments, and when people are difficult and there, is, there are issues with people who try and take advantage of you, um, but, but, but my experience is there's so much joy to be found in, in that process. And, and to, see, uh, to see my family loving uh, people who are perhaps difficult to love, to see the gospel impacting people who, are, who, who have problems, it's, that, it's a joy. It's a joy. I've made a d distinction in the past, I wonder if you could comment on this, that it makes a difference where you draw that line, it makes a difference depending on whether you're talking about apostles of the world or refugees from the world. So refugees, yes, okay, yeah, re yeah. refugees from the world are coming to you as a haven. Yeah. Apostles from the world are, yeah. are trying to come in and mess it up. They're trying to, uh, recruit, they're trying to recruit you. Yes. No. That's. Uh, no, I know. I. mean. I. I that, that's helpful. I think. And I. I mean. I, I'm trying to think. I think there are one. There have been a number of occasions where I have uh, asked people to uh, to leave, or I mean, or to. Um, I mean, not 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 just my home, but um, but but the fellowship of the church. Uh, non Christians because they were being disrupted. Because because I think they're there to disrupt. They're, they're, I think they're wolves trying to you know disrupt the sheep. Uh, and so there is a scope for that. But, but I mean, most of my experience is with what you, you know, what the phrase you use, the refugees of the world. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, speaking of people who are refugees from the world, I needed to uh, tell a story that involves Pastor John here. Uh, a number of years ago, we asked my father to come, and my father has a church that he pastors here in town, and we asked my father to come preach at Christ Church. And... Um, one of my colleagues went and filled the pulpit for my dad's church. And, uh, and so the, my colleague went into this, this small fellowship and there was a per, an outlier, one of the, the street people kind of outlier, troubled personality who was there um, in the church. And, and my colleague in his sermon read a quote from you about missions. 
And the quote began, missions is, and this person yelled out from the congregation, missions are. (laughs) 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 Just completely threw my phone. And he said, well, I'm I'm just reading a quote here. And And he... tried to read it again, and he said, missions is, and the guy yelled again, missions are, and he said, look, just hold your horse, I'm just reading a quote here, this is from somebody else, and the guy yelled out, well, he's an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I I would like another chance to preach another message called why the S on the end of mission is very, very important. Because, because I think the use of the term missional, which is the N-word today, uh, does uh, tend to, without helping everybody get their vocabulary straight, tends to mute the distinctiveness of missions. And, and one of the ways to preserve missions over against mission is to insist that the S means something. Now, it's arbitrary what you say that it means. For me, it means that language learning, culture crossing effort to put a church where it doesn't exist. That's missions. And mission is just everything. You know, it's everything. Missional is everything. And it's it's a new word for evangelism. And a lot of people confuse evangelism with missions. And they're not at all the same. Missions is taking evangelism across a culture. So I'm all into dealing with that guy's problem. I'm not sure that was his problem. (laughs) (laughs) But ignorance played a big role there. All right. Um, uh, Connected to the the question of missions in your talk uh, uh, the other night, uh, we were chatting a little bit at lunch about this, and I wanted to... uh, You were commenting, I believe, on how balanced you thought my already, not yet thing was. Right. Like it wasn't? (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah. Maybe you could speak for yourself right. here. Okay. <laughs> I asked Doug whether his hitting Christ has been born again and the world has been born again and Israel has been born again and you should be born again, be a part of that, was, I said, is this what you meant by those three past tenses? Um, the new birth of the cosmos was purchased, was guaranteed, and was begun. Is that what you meant by the past tense, and you overstated it in a lopsided way? (laughs) Leaving off the not yet. You you are not all born again. This world is not born again. I I said, why don't you do your typical self-contradictory thing and say, and say... It's not that typical. That, uh, it's just one, it's just, it's um, Chestertonianly typical to say this world has been born again, and it has not been born again. That's tr- And you said... What did you say? Well, first, I take the, I take the point and agree with, it, agree with what you're saying in substance, but there's a rhetorical thing here that I, I'm wanting to do. And I, I quite agree with you that I am emphasizing the indicative of, of what has been accomplished. And I'm emphasizing that, in a, I'm leaning this way, not the other way. It's not, I'm not doing a 50-50 thing. And that's because, in my experience, to tell the saints of God that the world is not born again is not something I need to tell them. They're already way too convinced of that. They're, they're already... That's, that's what they swim in all the time. And the, the indicative of the gospel is the good news part of the gospel. So I don't disagree with the point you're making in substance at all. Um, Paul's saying, the world is reconciled, be reconciled. Or you could put that more bluntly and say, the world is reconciled, the world is not reconciled. There's a sense in which the world is reconciled. There's a sense in which the world must yet still be reconciled. That, that has to flesh out. That has to um, come to pass. The, the thing that I was, as, as we were, I was thinking about our conversation, I was thinking about Hebrews 2. And in, 
in Hebrews 2, if I can find it here. But one is, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. This is a quotation from Psalm 8. It's talking about man, but the author of Hebrews talks, says it's fulfilled with man in Christ. So, uh, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he has put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Everything, is, everything belongs to Jesus, which is what I was hammering at. But now we see not yet all things put under him. All right, so all things are under him, but we don't see everything put under him yet. But we see Jesus. That's the next line. So I think that the people of God need to see Jesus declared as the Lord, um, triumphantly, gloriously, and when we go out from a conference or you go out after church service, you're going to be reminded in the first 15 minutes out there that the world's still a mess. I, I don't think we need a lot of persuading on that. But, but you don't... Here's what I think happens with a lot of people in response to a message like yours, is that when they go out, they see that and they say, oh, he was wrong. Because you didn't give him the little window, and I, I know what you think. So I'm sitting there exulting in the fixedness of the already, right. um, in, the, in the ideal, or we're on the way there. But I'm, I'm thinking there are a lot of suspicious people that don't like Doug Wilson. Right. And, and they're, they're Could you just, raise your hands, please? They're just, <laughs> just going to use this as another example of, well, it's weird. He doesn't even know that my mom has cancer or that there's a war going on in Syria or and he just talks like a naive it's done and and they so it's we're just talking rhetoric here we're talking how to say biblical things in ways that are that are helpful and and uh if if that's your your call and your choice that that's the way it needs to be said to advance that indicative already uh security and reality then Right. But, for it. but having done that, I want to happily acknowledge that we have thousands of years of work yet to do. Um, I, I believe that there's a lot of work yet to do, and, and, but we need to go out, I think, as more than conquerors, not, yeah. not campaigners, but as uh, I, I, I want us to think of, uh, uh, um, I want us to think of our approach into the world as the occupation of the Philippines like 20 years ago when the last Japanese soldier surrendered. I want us to think of the enclaves of unbelief as the Japanese soldier hiding up in the jungle, not surrendering 30 years after the real fighting was done. I want us to think of Christ risen as the real fighting. That was, the, that was when the devil's capital city fell. That's when the whole thing came apart for him. And we need to be thinking of ourselves as a, as a mop-up operation. And as long I just don't want us to get overwhelmed by the mop up. So I want to keep reminding people that the the definitive um, victory has been won. Tim, do you want to jump in on Yeah, I just want to I think just to add another way perhaps of looking at it, which is to recover I think some language that's there very strongly in Paul and it's there very strongly in the reformers, but we don't hear much of it today, and that's the language of hiddenness and of uh, manifestation. Yes. That um, so let's work, where should I start? Uh, the, 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 the most common way the New Testament describes what we usually describe as the return of Christ, it does use that language, but, but much more often it describes, it talks about it as the manifestation of Christ, or the revelation of Christ, or the appearing of Christ, it's the same word in the Greek. Uh, so, this, so, so I think this is where the ascension is very important. Um, that uh, Christ has ascended and, 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 and in ascending has received, comes before the Ancient of Days, receives all the dominion and, and authority and power. He's glorified. So, so, so in heaven, Christ is king. And he's not partly king. He's, he's, he is king. But he's king in absentia, as it were. He's, he's in heaven. Meanwhile, on earth, his rule continues to be contested. And our job is to, to, to go to the nations and, and declare the kingship of Christ. And, um, but, 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 but the idea then is that, that at the moment his kingship is hidden. Uh, 
Um, and, um, but one day it will be revealed. And, and then that, that, that has a sort of um, a parallel or analogy with our own experience, which is that uh, we have experienced new birth. Um, but uh, as I was saying, uh, you know, if I, you know, as I look around the room, there are, I don't see people who are reborn to a new resurrection life. I see people who are actually, in one or two cases, showing signs of decay. You know, and that's because we, we have resurrection life. I, don't, don't mistake me. I, that is a real experience. But the way that is manifest now in this, in this life is in actually our conformity to the cross. And that's the language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 4. But then in Colossians 3, Paul says that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. You know, the, 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 the appearing of Christ will be the appearing or the manifestation of, of the resurrection life that I have in, in a glorious new resurrection body. And Paul talks in Corinthians, Paul mentions that our outer man is decaying. Yes. The inner man is being renewed day by day, yearning toward that. That yes. Revelation. Yes, and that's but that's also where he says, you know, death is at work in, in us that life might be at work in you, and, and it's that language of, um, of of you know what this resurrection life looks like is 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 death in the sense of self denial, death to self, and service of others. And then in Romans eight, the groaning of the, the creation groans and the spirit groans, and we who have the first fruits of the spirit groan. We're all longing for the day of the manifestation. Yes, and that, that's the other thing, is that the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of the renewal of all things. Right. He is, and, and so, so, so the renewal of all things has begun in the resurrection of Jesus. At this point in time, there is a, there is, I don't know how to, what's the language to put it, but there is, there is somewhere in the universe, no, maybe that's not even the right, but, but anyway, at the Father's right hand is the beginning of, of the new creation, right. because there is Christ resurrected with a resurrection body. So, so Christ's resurrection was, by all rights, an end-of-the-world event that God took and placed in the middle of history. Yes. So um, he, God took this, the center of eschatology has been placed right in the center of all human history. Yeah. And then God says, okay, work it out from, yep. work it out from there. John, do you want anything to that? Totally. All right. Um, let's, um, I'd like to ask you about maybe some of the odd opportunities that God has given you. I was thinking, uh, Nancy mentioned to me in, in your talk, as a follow-up from your talk, as a number of years ago, when we first moved, moved to Moscow, um, we had a rental house that was right off of the high school property. And there was a big ditch that the kids called Doper's Ditch. And, and they weren't allowed to smoke on school grounds property. So all the high school kids would come down and uh, stand right off the property and smoke their cigarettes and everything. And it was right by our garage. And one morning, um, my dad looked out, to, and there was a cop car, and he, the cop was dispersing the kids and said, you know, we had too many complaints from the neighbors. And so my dad thought, this is a glorious opportunity. And he, he ran out and said, Officer, can the kids smoke in my garage? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and he said, well, suit yourself. So... Um, so he chased, the cop chased all the kids in the garage, and my dad went and rented a pop machine and got a bunch of tables, and, <laughs> and there was like a three or four month ministry of called it came to be known as God's Garage, um, where where you're just looking for I didn't see that coming or I didn't see that yeah, I yeah. didn't see that opportunity. I've, uh, you told some stories about. Um, remarkable uh, how things that you would not have expected yeah. to touch someone's life. Um, anything like that? Any other oh, stories I don't know. like that? This moment, your mind goes blank. But I tell you what, I have thought. I don't, I don't, it might be completely different in the States. In the UK now, it's illegal to smoke inside a workplace, a place where anybody works. So suddenly what we've got is little groups of people standing at back doors huddled around smoking. It's really quite sad, really, in a way. Um, and I think, I just wonder whether, you know, anyway, I, I, my, the, the thought crossed my mind, maybe you should start smoking just so you can go and stand with them. Because <laughs> here they all are for, for 10 minute peri periods, sort of every, you know, four or you five times. Use an electric cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. 
that might be the way forward. Well, you don't even have to go and smoke. You just need to go and stand there with them. I mean, although then you'll get all this. But anyway, you know, because here they, and I guess my point is, and a number of people have come and said to me, I mean, some of the questions said, I'm a student. I can't really invite people. I lodge in a house. It's not very easy for me to invite people over to, to eat a meal. You know, what, what can I do? Uh, one or two questions along those lines. And I, I think the, that's the key thing is to, to, to the people you'd like to reach, look at the rhythms of their lives. How is it that they do meals? You know, how is it that they, not just meals, but how do they do community? How do they, how do they connect? Where, where, where are those moments? And then, and then go and be there for Christ. So, so in the case of the students, you know, I, I can see that, you know, putting on a fancy dinner party in, is, is not really going to be the way it works with students. But going for a coffee, that's just part of, you know, that's part of student culture. So, so make that, you know, that, so, so, so you don't have, you know, don't think that, there's, there's, there's this way of doing meals. You know, think about how people do meals within the culture. So in, in, in the area we're from, uh, there's quite a strong sort of working class community. And again, coming over to people's house for a meal is, is a slightly strange thing to do. But, but, but going for a drink is very normal. Going and um, uh, buying fish and chips is very normal. You know, you've got to think about how is it that, that meals work within your culture. It, it seems like the principle that perhaps could be expended, extended is that what appeared to almost everybody as a point of irritation became a point of, of outreach. And so it might be to your list. You said write down things you do every day, things you do every week, things you do every month. And you might make another list, things that irritate me, yeah. that people do. And the one that... that People knocking on your door. We, we live in an inner city house, and so there's a steady stream of street people who are knocking on the door with mostly lies, we're pretty sure. And you can, your, your whole mindset can be, how do you get this person out of my life as soon as possible? Because he's a liar. Now, that's, I just don't think that's a very biblical mindset. I don't think that's a very, and it's a very typical mindset for for people. And so... We've tried and failed many times to say, okay, we're not going to you know, fund your drug habit, but we will go with you and take you where you need to go, which is way more costly than a dollar, way more. And so Noel has taken women who've come. They say, I need diapers for my, for my kid. I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, so she'll just take him to Walgreens by the diapers. She's got some great stories about people who've come back and they were telling the truth. And, and so I've taken people to help get glasses and take them to a funeral. And it's just way costly, but it, it's a mindset change from irritation to human love, turn the other cheek, give to him who asks, think through ways to perhaps not just think, get out of my life, I'm, I'm busy. Just, to, I mean, so just to, uh, I'm trying to, I'm thinking of stories now. One of the stories was, I, I, I mentioned the work among Kurds that, that was going on, and that's, um, that's been going on for a number of years, and in fact, uh, two, two couples, one single woman, have been over to Kurdistan and stayed there for two years to learn the language, learn the culture, so that they can better serve the Kurds in, in Sheffield. But that really started because one of our guys was teaching English uh, as a foreign language to, to immigrants, and got to know Kurds, and so started going to one of the Kurdish kebab uh, restaurants, or uh, restaurants is perhaps a little bit of a grand term, kind of cafes, and uh, just meeting Kurds, taking other people with him, so we were getting to, to, to just sort of hang out with Kurds, and then uh, on one occasion they said, do you want to come upstairs to the casino? And uh, we thought, what is this? What is this casino that's going on upstairs? You know, the sort of den of iniquity or something. But um, but but they went up, and uh, I went up a few times as well. We used to joke because there was this rickety sort of stairs up to this back, and we thought if 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 Hebrews 11 ever gets rewritten, it'll be by faith some have um, escaped death by the stairs and some have died. You know. Um, and, and basically, it was, it was a games room. I mean, what they were doing was playing blackgammon up there and with Kurdish TV on, serving tea, and it was filled with smoke as well. I mean, there was no... I, I can only think that somebody arrived and said, what is the word... What is the English word for a room where you play games? And someone had said, oh, it's a casino. And so that's what they thought it was, you know. But there was no gambling going on. Um, 
but yeah, but out of that, I mean, um, people, Kurds, we've seen Kurds, I mean, and, and mostly from a Muslim background, being saved, coming to Christ, just out of, out of connecting with people, befriending them, uh, and helping them out with some of their needs, and then sharing the gospel with them. A number of years ago, uh, we were, before we lived in our house, we were living in a duplex, and the duplex was bought by a Korean couple, graduate students at the U of I. And when they moved in, they moved in next door. They were the owners. And I had a brief uh, conversation with them in the driveway, just background. I, f I found out that they were nominal Buddhists. And it but it was a very low, very low key discussion, just chatting, right? Um, found out later that they thought that it was a heavy duty witnessing, um, heavy duty thing. Um, but then some weeks later, uh, came to the door and they said, would you, be, would you be willing to come next door and tell some Koreans about Christianity? And I said, sure, and we finally set it up and, and, and we went over there and I was thought I was gonna be talking to them or maybe somebody else. Well, they had rounded up every Korean in Moscow. <laughs> and, and, and they were, the way the system worked is they were the oldest, so they had the authority to round up every um, <laughs> Korean in Moscow and the, their living room was jam-packed. And I came over and they said, so tell us about Christianity. And so I presented the gospel, laid it, laid it out, and they had all the same questions that Americans do. Like where did Cain get his wife? And you know, all the, the yeah but questions. There, there was a Q&A and they asked questions and I would answer the question and they would say, oh, and wrote it down. <laughs> that's, the, that's the answer apparently. And <laughs> so this room full of Koreans came to cry. It turned into a weekly Bible study. Uh, there were lapsed Christians who became Christians. The couple became, you know, they, they came to Christ. Um, and we had a weekly Bible study through the Gospel of Mark for a long time. And we, I would lead the Bible study and then everybody would get up. Chong Wan would get up, everybody would follow him next door. And then they would debrief in Korean. And <laughs> what was that all about? And <laughs> And I'll, I'll finish with this one thing. There was one guy there who had, was utterly baffled at why Jesus told the disciples that it was okay, that they ought to leave behind the purse and the billfold, billfold and everything, but they could take their staff. Um, because he thought the staff was administrative assistant, secretary. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't take anything with you, but you've got to take your entourage. You know? <laughs> Can I just add, just quickly, uh, one of the other lessons I think from our experience with the Kurds was that from that place where, where the, the Kurdish uh, sort of cafe with the uh, casino upstairs, a couple of doors down was a Christian cafe. And every, that, that a, a church had run and was running, and every time we went past there was nobody in it. And um, I think, uh, the, the, the point I want to make is you don't have to start something as a church. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying if you, you know, that starting a cafe is a bad idea. You know, if, if you're in a context where there are no other cafes and that would be a great point for the community to meet and so on, that would be great. But, but don't feel that as a church you have to start a cafe or you have to start a, a club for cyclists or for, or for musicians or whatever. You know, get involved in what's going on. Because the irony was that they were putting all this effort into running a cafe Whereas two doors down the road, we were able to share the gospel and someone else had got the job of running the cafe. You know, the, the, the Kurds were doing the, the, the hard work. We just turned up and ate kebabs and, and talked about Jesus, you know? Yeah. One of the things that occurred to me that I, I'd like to encourage you all to do is um, people love stories. They love testimonies. They love to tell the, the narrative of when you were talking about the... Um, Helen, I think she said she, she gave her story, and this other, this other woman, Hannah, Hannah um, uh, she was listening to the story, and people, when you say, let me tell you a story, let me tell you how this happened, people get engaged, and it becomes very real, and as you've had remarkable interactions with, um, with non-believers, or there's a story, make sure you tell that story. Make, make sure that you share it with people so that we may be encouraged by that. My, my dad is a gifted evangelist, and when Nate was a little boy, my dad did a, an around-the-world trip. He went, went around the world to, to minister mini, missionary kids and to 
help people. It was a round-the-world mission trip, and a lot of remarkable things happened to him. And he came back to Moscow, and, he, we, and rather than tell his story 50 times, he just filled the, we just had an event, and he just told all his, told, told all his stories. And he, narrative of God's goodness, and Nate was probably this tall, and we, we were leaving, and Nate said, when I grow up, I'm going to be like Grandpa and tell people about my trip. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, telling stories is contagious. It, it catches. It, um, and you can visualize these things. Um, changing gears slightly, I'd like to move to um, uh, one of the points you made about um, uh, reached peoples, and I forget the name you used for the unengaged. unengaged. So there's the unengaged and then the unreached. And, and the definition that you gave of of a reached people would be when there's 2% um, believers. Now, that, that seems to me to be a wonderful um, way to think of a beachhead, right? That's, uh, 2% means that if, for example, the communists take over China, kick out all the missionaries, there were enough native Christians to carry on the work so we come back 40 years later and find that the church has exploded because there were enough to carry the work on. So you've got, let's say you've got 2%. Do you envision, the, but I wanted to follow this up and make sure that you thought that that 2% was just the beginning. That's the Normandy. We get, we get the beachhead. We still have to, in all 16,000 people groups, take Berlin. We still have to reach the the entire people. Um, we should. That's the mission. That's the command. Um, the, the picture I have that might be illuminating is I talk in terms of Paul-type missionaries and Timothy-type missionaries, and I call them both missionaries because Paul said in Romans 15 that he had completed the gospel. He had fulfilled, literally fulfilled the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum, that is Albania. So uh, mid-50s, uh, he's been at work for a couple decades, and he, he has finished his work from Jerusalem up through Syria, across Asia Minor, down through Greece, up to the top of Italy. I'm done. I have no more work here. I'm on to Spain. That is unintelligible if you don't make a distinction between frontier missionaries and other kinds, because there's plenty of work to do. So he takes Timothy, who he met in Lystra, and he deposits him in Ephesus and makes him the pastor of the beachhead, to use your language, and says, uh, evangelize Asia. There's... They're evangelists. There's work to be done here. Lots of work. That's what local churches are for in any culture where the gospel has a beach head. So to say 2% is enough would be like saying, your work is done in Moscow. You guys should all leave or uh, there's no more evangelism to be done here. And so no. Um, I mean, whichever question you ask, yes, no. Um, uh, there's, there's work to be done. And it's to be done because we're commanded to, to evangelize our neighbors, to, to, to go to First Peter and uh, declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light wherever we are. Missions gets it started. Missions plants the church, makes the beachhead, and then Paul, he's on to Spain because that work is done. And that, that, I, I just hope that in every church there'll be a pocket of those kind of people who live for that and then lots of other people when, when Paul wrote his letter to Rome, he said, I want you to get on board and send me to Spain. He didn't say, I want you to go with me. Right. There's work to be done in Rome. Most of you should stay there. That's your life calling. Salt and light in every um, vocation there in Rome. But for me, my calling, there's nothing in Spain. And so I'm, I'm out of here because my work is, is done. And I, I would just like every local church to to have a, a coterie of people who are just burning to raise up those goers. So Paul, Paul to Spain was like Livingston in Africa, you know, just the first guy there. You know. um, so this, 
this is part of what contributes to my bafflement on the post mill thing. I was going to promise to. Ask. I could smell it coming. <laughs> <laughs> so eager to have it. Yes. In what in in what way was your gloriously triumphant message last night not an optimistic eschatology? I'm happy with optimism. Um, Most people are. <laughs> um, the difference between me, I think, and you, though, I read Heaven... Heaven Misplaced, yeah. Misplaced, read every word of it, and when I got done, I thought, I don't think I disagree with anything in this book, and I'm not a post-millennialist, so what's up? So I didn't regard anything in there as a compelling argument for post-millennialism. And you heard last night's message as an evidence of post-millennialism, and I'm thinking, I'm missing something here, because um, I'm not getting this. Um, the, I, I think Jesus is going to break into this world and finish the job I described last night. That is, we are to plant the beachheads and then make as much advance as we can till he comes, and I think he's coming with a lot more mess in the world than you do. A lot and more mess remaining? Remaining, okay. precisely. He's got, a lot to, he's got a lot of people to kill, and... Uh, <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll, All right, I'll, let's give her a moment to tweet that. That, that's, a, that's a quote from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, if you don't take my word for it. Um, and, and a lot of um, um, people to give rest to. He's going to give rest to us, and he's going to bring vengeance upon the, those who have not believed the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. So he breaks into the world when things are a huge mess. So I, and, and what I've never quite caught on with post-millennialists is how much mess can they tolerate before they stop being post-millennialists? Because I doubt that you mean that when, when, when the gospel sweeps the world and becomes triumphant, there's no mess left. I, d I doubt that you mean that. No, there's plenty of mess left. And, and so it, it, it almost, the reason I don't write articles about this and I haven't written a book about it and I don't, I don't get on his case publicly, though I might someday. Um, <laughs> You did write a book about it. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad. Okay. Um. I had the same sensations reading that as I did last night. That's right. So, so I've just lost my train of thought totally. I had a, a really good point to make. Um, so, so, oh, yes. The, the reason I haven't written the other book is because it seems like the difference is one of quantitativity. I mean, let's forget about what happens on the other side of the second coming. That, that, that's another part of the argument, like the millennium and, and the thousand years and that. But on this side of the second coming, a post-millennialist is, is uh, there's just a triumph of, of the nations and, and a golden age and so on. And for, a, for an optimistic premillennialist like me, this gospel will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. So my, my triumph is we're going to penetrate every nation, how far we'll get in each of them, and how Christianized my city could wind up being, I don't know. I just know the description of the second coming as it's portrayed in Paul especially is Jesus breaking in to a very, very messed up world and setting things, setting things right. One more comment about uh, optimism. Um, as I've preached at missions conferences and, and tried to be optimistic like last night about the triumph of the gospel uh, and all the nations being included in the gospel, I've said I regard myself as torching the glacier because I picture uh, the end time, uh, the love of many will grow cold. All right? So, so this is a guy sitting watching TV with a flat screen, going to the refrigerator and saying, well, it's the end times, it's all over, you know. So the love of many will grow cold. Now my conclusion from that is, I got a torch called the gospel. I've got a sovereign God whose hand is on my hand, and as the, ice, as the, as the uh, glacier comes over Minneapolis, I'm torching it. 
like this, everywhere. And I, nothing in my eschatology says I might melt the whole thing. I might melt the whole thing in Minneapolis. There's nothing in my eschatology that says Moscow couldn't be a city set on a hill and you might actually succeed in what you're about and have this whole thing look like uh, uh, the Christian Mecca of, of the universe here. That, that could happen. Wouldn't change my eschatology at all. But it won't be that way in every city. That's okay, so if I could... Um Let's say we divide eschatology instead of pre, post, and amillennial, which are the standard divisions. Let's say we talked about optimillennialism and pessimillennialism. And, <laughs> and so, and leave out of it the uh, train schedule stuff of rapture and dispensation, you know, all the stuff where uh, we might get caught up on details. And we're simply talking about the question of optimistic assumptions about history prior to the com second coming of Christ and pessimistic assumptions. Now, it seems postmillennialists have to be optimistic by definition. Amillennialists can be either optimistic or pessimistic, depending on their framework and outlook and understanding the word. Premillennialists can be either optimistic or pessimistic. So um, many premillennialists, the received assumption is pessimillennialism. It's the common assumption. But Spurgeon was premill, as you are. But he, he believed in the triumph of the gospel going forth, conquering, and to conquer. So he, he believed in a real optimistic victory, expecting victory, preaching for victory. He expected that, and he did that within the context of premillennialism. So you're, not, you're saying, I don't know to what extent this people group will be, you know, one people group might be... Um, one to Christ at 80% level, one might be stuck at 2%, one, you know, we have this variation. Is there anything in your understanding that would mandate that we couldn't disciple the nations, all of them? Meaning what? The, the, so in the Great Commission, you've got the nations, the ethnoi, as the, as the object of the verb. So Jesus says, all authority given to me, therefore go disciple the nations baptizing them, teaching them obedience. So it's, it seems to me the commission is to successfully evangelize all 16,000. Now, I don't think that that necessarily means 100% for all 16,000, because you're right, I, I believe we're going to have problems right up to the end. And I would compare it to progressive sanctification in a Christian's life. By the end of Paul's life, he's now the chief of sinners. He's, he's aware, very aware of the things that still remain to be done. The closer, the closer we get to um, heaven and the realization of these things, the more aware we're going to be of, of the remaining deficiencies, etc. So the gospel only progresses through death and resurrection, which means 100 years before the end, it's still repenting, it's still, there's still death, there's still mortification of sin. It's, it's, it's not like it's a trouble-free. Yeah, and there are, just, just to make the problem clear there are massive setbacks like right. yes. North Africa was glorious and a massive setback it's there. gone yeah and the Middle East and so any any sense of post-millennial progressivism has to deal with the realities of of horrific Christian setbacks which you, you say it's just God's concealed triumphs right which is true all things considered I believe all things work together for for good but it's, it's, it, that, that means that just on the brink of your getting to the point where this is as good as it has to get before Jesus comes, it could go backwards 500 years. And, and so my, my, the answer, I don't know how to answer your question because I don't know to what degree disciple the nations means. If you give me 90%, 80%, I wouldn't know what to say. So the way, to, the way to say it might be there has to be enough mess in the world to make sense out of the passages that Jesus comes into in Second Thessalonians. There has to be enough sense there to make. Like there can't be one unbeliever left. That wouldn't make sense out of the passage. Right. And so you back it up. So, so my question for you would be, is there anything in your view which would say it can only get to about 60%? No. That's, that's why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Tim, do you want to get tangled up with us here? Well... I mean, one reflection is that moments like these, I'm glad to be English. 
Um, you probably don't want to come to me because I, I might complicate it a bit more. Because I don't. That would be great. <laughs> I don't think the a pre post typology serves us well. I think that I think there are there, there are probably better ways of setting up what the options are. Like optimo are. and well, well, maybe that is the way forward. And then you anyway. I I think um, I don't know if this will help or not, but I think that. Um, one of the key things for me is that the, um, in Revelation 20, the people who reign with Christ are those who've been beheaded. Those are the ones who sit on thrones. And I think all the way through Revelation and, and there again, you know, it is the, the way that the saints reign with Christ is actually through suffering and martyrdom. It is, it is the Latimer and Ridley, Ridley, which is, by the way, dear to me because I used to live near Oxford. I've stood on the spot many times. It's a very moving thing to do. Um, and so, what, 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 so, so in terms of this discussion, I, I, I do think I, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic in the sense that I think that the gospel does advance, it does grow, the, the yeast through the dough and so on. But I also think that there is at the same time a reaction to that. And so the opposition grows. And so that, so that, that advance is, is, in the, is, is actually through suffering and through martyrdom and, 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 and the denial of self and so on. And so, so and I think that accounts for, for that sense, all those promises that, it things that, that, that seem so optimistic, all those the things that you're talking about that seem so pessimistic, that actually that, that's, that, that is the picture. Both of those are the picture because the gospel advances as it did from the beginning, more and more through suffering, through martyrdom, through those who overcome because they don't love their lives even unto death. This is, there's a larger issue in, in this um, than just eschatology because it has to do with how you evaluate your own story, what, the, what is the meaning of these afflictions that God's brought into my life right now, or what our church is going through. Um, and I see a lot of Christians dividing up in Hebrews 11 where you have these great heroes of the faith, and there's that section where you have those of whom the world is not worthy, they lived in caves, they wandered in uh, goatskins, they were sawn in two, and you've got these terrible things happening to God's great victors. But then you've got, in that same passage, people who received dead back to life, who put armies to, put armies to flight. You've got, you've got great heroes of the faith who succeed in ways that we would identify instantly as success. Yeah. And then there are others who succeed in ways that we wouldn't call success unless, unless we were taught by Scripture. So you've got to, to see it that way. So you, you see, was Jeremiah's ministry successful? Well, not by any reckoning or metric that we would come up with. But there were other ministries that were uh, stupefyingly successful. John the Baptist's in terms of you know, all of Judea, you know, he was beheaded, but he was beheaded because he was so successful. There were so many people uh, listening to him. So uh, when we look at this, we are temp tempted, I think, sometimes to choose up sides where we, where we say, well, I, I prefer this kind of uh, theology of the cross. And other people say, I prefer the theology of the crown. But I don't see how you can have one without the other. If you have the crown, you had to have had a cross. If you have the cross, God will raise you from the dead. He, he is going to accomplish his purpose through that. I think what, maybe the tonal difference between a post and an optimistic pre is that the way, the way I think, and I think the way Paul talks about the second coming, the physical arrival of Jesus to take authority on the planet, is that it comes as a relief to people in those moments of beheading and suffering. That's, I'm coming to give you relief. He's saying that to the Thessalonians, that he's going to arrive and give relief to you and vengeance to those who are your enemies. It's portrayed as, as breaking into a, a horrific conflict where it's a precious triumph. Like we are, we are being attacked and he's coming and driving them back finally and forever. So the, the t that's the tone I feel about the second coming. And, and, and I'm not sure how to, I've never been able to get inside the skin of a post millennialist to see like what it feels like 
when, when he shows up... It what, feels good. <laughs> good. I'm, yes, it does. Another agreement. I, without, there's just way too much material to, to get into, but I, I do agree with you that the post-millennialist has to account for these dark prophets in the, last, in the latter days, uh, deceitful men, you know, and most 20th, 20th and 21st century post-millennialists um, are on such passages are preterists and understand the last days there to be the last days of the old Judaic aeon. 2,000 years ago. And there are some of those passages that apply to our future, but, but many of them, like when Paul, uh, Paul tells Timothy about what's going to happen uh, in the last days, these deceivers will arise. Da, da, da. And then he says to Timothy, who's been dead 2,000 years, from such turn away. Right? These are men that you're going to be dealing with in, in your lifetime. So are you one of those? Yeah. Preterists? Yeah, well, I'm not. I believe that full, what's called full preterism or hyperpreterism is heretical um, because it denies the second coming and denies the resurrection of the dead and it proves way too much. But I am what's called a partial preterist. I believe that many of the prophecies that you would point to to describe how Jesus comes back at the end of the world are how Jesus came in judgment on Jerusalem, how he uh, intervened in the last days of the Judaic aeon. So you have the old Judaic aeon and the new Christian aeon overlapping by about 40 years. The Pentecost inaugurates the Christian aeon. 70 AD concludes the Judaic aeon. And the author of Hebrews says this, um, this old order is fading away. It's passing away. This, this, um, this world is coming to nothing. They're, they're coming to nothing. And so when Jerusalem falls, I think that's the church coming out of the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, and the church invading Canaan. So, um, that's, but I don't believe that we can take every passage that talks about, um, you know, the like start. Second Thessalonians 1? No, uh, second, I have not preached through First and Second Thessalonians because I'm not ready yet. <laughs> I, I, read it for yourself. Just read it for yourself. <laughs> All right. I believe that we are out of time. So... <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.